Welcome to This Must Be the Place, the show that reveals the unique physical, cultural, and emotional layers of places. I am joined this time by Brian Schrader. Brian is a long-term Seattleite who has worked in one way or another across the entire spectrum of activities involved with software development, from planning to design to testing. That's how he and I cross paths. But that's not the reason I asked him to join me today. Throughout the years, Brian has had the courage to design his life in such a way that he can weave in bursts of long-term travel and adventure along with the day-to-day pragmatic facets of life. It is this ability to just get up and go that I'd like to explore. Brian, it's great to have you on the show today. Thank you. Let's start by giving listeners a bit of context. Could you share a little background on you and give us a summary of where you have traveled just to set the stage a bit? Sure. I was born in Italy. Parents are American citizens, but my dad was working as a civilian for the Air Force. And I was born in Portinone near Aviano Air Force Base. Really an adventurous kid, always doing some kind of like extreme sport or listening to rowdy, loud music, being in, in bands. I'm always itching to do something. But it wasn't until my girlfriend at the time and I went backpacking in Europe after college. We took a quarter off and spent 10 weeks backpacking, sort of your classic American privileged backpacking trip. (laughs) Um, So we went all over Europe, France, Spain, Portugal, Italy, got to go back to see where I was born, Netherlands, Uh, went to Morocco for a couple of days. So we got to have a little taste of Africa. And that really got the hook (laughs) sunk into me. At the end of the 10 weeks, I was like, I don't want to stop. Like, can we keep going? And I think my girlfriend, she became my wife. She was like, oh, that that was good. Let's let's go home. Let's go back to our normal life. That was the the beginning of, of the addiction. Every year after that, we were kind of always looking for something to do. So we became engaged. We got uh, got married and had our honeymoon in Jamaica. So that was like, oh, this is this is great. At the time, I was in a band as well. We were a very aggressive political band. Uh, we didn't really have our voice in Seattle. You know, we played a couple of shows here, but in international, this was a time MP3.com was sort of a big deal, and we were doing really well. We had one track on the top 10 of the whole, of every genre of the whole site, Hmm. which was shocking to me because the music was very unpopular, (laughs) but there were, there was a a place for us in um, particular Toronto, New York, and England, England, Scotland, the British Isles, and Glasgow. To this day, there's a a club there still playing our, one of our tracks. (laughs) What was the name of the band? It's a little embarrassing. The band is not a, not a great name, but (laughs) we were called the Shizit. Uh, Uh, we, we thought we were the shit. (laughs) So we, uh, were fortunate enough to catch the ear of one of our, of one of our idols, um, a a man named Alec Empire, founder of digital hardcore recordings and founder of the band Atari Teenage Riot. He was doing a solo tour and he had put us on a compilation of American bands doing this style of music. And we sort of, I called him and I was like, Alec, we're going to, we're going to open for you. And he's like, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we're, we're buying plane tickets. We're going to come open for you on the U- your UK tour. And he's like, yeah, yeah, sure. Yes, this is fine. <laughs> so I kind of, uh, aggressively pushed my way onto this tour, but you know, he didn't agree to pay us anything. <laughs> you just said, you've got an opening slot, but it was also, it was also very difficult tore the band apart we fought typical cliche sort of 
uh, disagreements and, and broke up. So after that, my wife and I, we made our way to Cuba. It was something that we had sort of had put in our minds when we were in Jamaica, but it was too last minute to really make it happen. And how, was, and, uh, how did you go into Cuba? Was it when it was restricted travel time? Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. We found a travel agency in Mexico, and I was, again, liking the adventure of it, but I was kind of like overly paranoid. Like I went to a payphone to call these guys and mm-hmm. <laughs> arranged to meet them at the airport in Cancun and paid cash right. and mm-hmm. you know, all very secretive. But in reality, it, Cuba's very easy to get to, very welcoming to Americans. They, you know, didn't want to hassle us. They, we got an entry card for our passport. Instead of stamping our passport, they stamp the card and they take it when you leave. And we had a great time. People there are very uh, welcoming. And it was, it was eye-opening and interesting. We had planned for a long time to go to Thailand and ended up buying a condo. And that life, you know, got in the way. But we had this idea of Southeast Asia in our minds and ended up Went to Tibet for about 12 days, traveled overland, which was fascinating. Um, really, you know, traveling by train around Europe is is a great way to travel overland and see lots of places. But when you get in a car and you start, you know, really like you're stopping, getting food in, in places that normal normally a tourist wouldn't. Then we from there, we went into Nepal and India. Uh, we did a lot of hiking and um, you know, typical backpacking, touristy kind of stuff around India. After that, we were like, okay, where are we going to go that sort of like captures that feeling? Said, let's go to Mongolia. The type of Buddhism in Mongolia is similar to Tibetan Buddhism. And also they have this horse riding culture. My wife grew up with horses. And Mm. so that drew us to Mongolia. And then trying to figure out how to get there and actually what we were going to do there. We wanted to do some kind of charitable component. We ended up finding this event called the Mongol Rally, where you drive yourself there from the UK, you buy a car, you drive to Mongolia, you donate the car, you're raising money for a charitable organization. And that was an amazing adventure on, on all on its own. We got to see all these former Soviet republics, Central Asia, a little taste of Eastern Europe that we hadn't quite seen before. So that was great. We met great people on that trip too that ended up organizing other rallies. So that's how we got involved with doing the Baltic rally. We drove all around the Baltic Sea. Again, this is Eastern Europe, former Soviet republics, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia. Um, around what time period did this all happen? This was it, two years after the Mongol rally. Or no, it was... Mm-hmm. A year, two years later? Yeah, two years later. Like in 2000. 2012, mm-hmm. I think we did that. So, we did, yeah, we did the Mongol Rally in 2010. We did the Baltic Rally in 2012. Just great fun. It, much much easier than the Mongol Rally. It's only two, three weeks, and you're on great roads, and you're in, mostly in civilized places. <laughs> and what is it about this kind of exploration? It's a combination of automotive geekery, if you will, and geographical movement that, that fascinates you. What, yeah. What's that combination? It's It's been part of what you're doing. I mean, you have a site, nomadistan.com, mm-hmm. we can talk about later, sure. but your involvement with cars, adjusting cars, vehicles, <laughs> taking them on the road is something that seems central to, to what you do. What's that fascination sure. about? Yeah, so... Being in the car puts you in much closer to proximity with the places that you're visiting. I don't, I don't know if you've ever seen The Long Way Around with Ewan McGregor. This mm-hmm. was mm-hmm. something that we we considered research before we did the Mongo Rally, but it's really just a fun show. Anybody would love it. And they're traveling by motorcycle. And so, you know, they had very much the same feeling. And of course, being on a motorcycle puts you 
more intimately in touch with the the geography and the people and the place that you're in than even being in a car does. But being in a car is a lot different than traveling point to point by airplane or bus. You're stopping whenever you want. You're in the environment really more like the people who live there and less like a tour. And also, especially buying a car in, a, in another country, you kind of have a sense of ownership about the object itself. Traveling overland in Tibet in the Toyota Land Cruisers was great, uh, great fun. But like when you buy your own vehicle, you kind of have this sense of like one of the co-adventurers on the trip is the car. One of the facets of the Mongol rally is the car cannot be a, a, a like an overland truck with a big engine and powerful, you know, four wheel drive. And, you know, the, the, it's it's supposed to be, <laughs> they say, an unsuitable vehicle. And a lot of people that do it, they really take that to heart. Comes out of a tr- sort of a tradition in Europe, these things called banger rallies. They just buy like a $500 car and drive it as far as they can. So Images of Herbie the Love Bug. Sure. Of these movies come to mind yeah. on these. But, you know. So a rally really is just you're driving not on a circuit. You're driving from a point to point. There are usually like stages and checkpoints. And it's usually on like a public road. Or sometimes they're off-road, um, but it's not a dedicated racetrack. So really winning is, if you get there first, you sort of have lost. <laughs> and so the Mongol Rally tries to instill this uh, idea that you don't want to get there too fast. It, it'd be ideal if you broke down a couple of times. So when we started forming this team for the Mongol Rally, my friend and I, we bought two uh, Fiat Puntos in, in Manchester, England. And so we went over a week before the event and got them checked out. And, and you had to drive them all the way from Manchester, England into the start of the rally? Is, or the rally began that year, beginning um, in, oh, what's it called? It's like Portsmouth or... Mm-hmm. In the um, south of England. Yeah, right? yeah. And there's a racetrack there called Goodwood. It's a pretty famous British racetrack. And so we actually got to do a lap around Goodwood. Um, you know, not too fast. <laughs> and that, that was the launch there. I, the year that we did, it was a pretty big year. I think there were 430 teams, a lot of kids, a lot of like 18 year old British kids fresh out of, you know, finishing their A-levels and getting ready to go off on their first adventure. A decent amount of people more, you know, our age in, in their thirties and, and then some, you know, some, even some older people, some retired folks. And that was really cool to see some older guys in like an ambulance that we had the, the rules where you had to have a 1.2 liter engine, but you could get around that at the time by buying what they call like a service vehicle. So if you had a, a fire truck or a ambulance and you kind of dressed it up sort of in a fantastic way, they would let you get around the engine rule. And all, the point being, all this stuff got donated at the end. So Mongolia needed these type of emergency vehicles and it was a good way to get them into the country they're not doing that anymore i think they got you know their share they're like we don't we don't need anymore so now actually if you do were to go to do the mongol rally you have to, you're responsible for exiting with the vehicle disposing of it in a legal and um, appropriate way by selling it you probably have to take it back to europe somewhere <laughs> but um and you talked about you know the the relationship you have with the automobile it becomes an extension of the team what are some of the memorable experiences during your rallies that really stuck with you or made an impact on the person you are today are there like specific events or or happenings as you went through that that really stick in your mind yeah well i mean one of the things too about being in a car and being so close is 
is you you really under, get to understand the generosity and hospitality of people. We would be, you know, driving through Uzbekistan, for example, and people would just come up to you and notice you. Obviously, your this car is is bizarre looking to them, but, uh, but just come up to you and hand you melons and and want to talk to you and want to know about you. And our team was quite a diverse team too. My friend is Indian, South Indian from Kerala, and uh, another teammate of ours, she's Korean. I mean, they both grew up in New Jersey, but. That you know, you look at our team, kind of a you know um, a rainbow coalition. Yeah, <laughs> racially and, and gender diverse. Um, so people were drawn to that, especially in a place like Uzbekistan. There's a huge Korean population having to do with the politics of the former Soviet Union and what happened after the breakup, and this group of people kind of stuck in Uzbekistan um, of Korean descent. People would just come up to my friend and start speaking Korean. She's like. I know a few words. I grew up in Jersey, but it, it, endearing, you know, to have that kind of an interaction. And also in Almaty, Kazakhstan, for example, we were, that was sort of like our halfway point. So we stopped the cars. We, we had, a, we were at a hotel and we kind of like jacked them up and we did an oil change and trying to add some rally lights, these like things that we had not quite had time to do. In the middle of all of this, we realized there's a wedding about to take place at this hotel. Mm. And we are a little embarrassed. And we talked to uh, some of the, these guys. And we're like, we're, we'll clean up. We'll get out of your way. We don't want to disrupt the wedding as these fancy SUVs are pulling up in front of the hotel. And they said, no, no, no. You, you know, you're fine. You guys do, you do what you got to do. And as sort of as we were finishing, they're bringing champagne out to <laughs> us. And these guys are just want to talk to us. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, and this is their celebration of their marriage. And here they are, have interest in us just because we're foreign and strange and it was it was uh one of these guys we found out worked for the kazakh secret service mm. in their surveillance apparatus and which is i don't know good or bad but he gave me his card he said if you ever have any trouble with the police you give me a call and uh your problems will go away mm -hmm. <laughs> kazakhstan the roads were incredibly harsh and brutal you know they call them roads but off-road would really be a better description we, we would stop at, at some towns and people were just incredibly helpful and we ended up in krasnoyarsk in siberia which if you ever look at a 10 ruble note there's a bridge on it and that's in krasnoyarsk and we didn't know until we got there mostly tom and i were driving around with the car while the girls did some sightseeing but and at night it was like we all the whole group we went out and they took us to a sauna we had salmon and drinks and we did the whole russian sauna culture you go into the very hot room and they beat you with these the bushes bushes mm -hmm. yeah it's called vinic it's mm -hmm. uh, like a birch branch and then you go and you jump into the cold water and so we had that whole experience just because we're these weird looking people driving this strange car mm -hmm. and um and what are overnights like? I mean, you talked about going through Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Siberia, Mongolia. Are there specific cities and locations where you get to relax and stay overnight or sometimes an overnight in the cars themselves? Sure. We knew that there would be camping. So we had tents and we did camp several times, literally just on the side of the road. Uh, we'd pull off in, I remember, Uzbekistan. We were driving through at night. We, we knew we weren't going to get to a city. We were getting tired. And the idea was not to drive at night if it could all be helped because you just can't see very well. There's animals on the road. The road conditions are bad. Visibility is really important. So 
we drove literally off to the shoulder and hiked with our tents, maybe a hundred feet into these, these sand dunes and just pitched our tents mm -hmm. and perfectly safe. Nobody ever bothered us. We camped in some goat herd fields a couple of times, but there were also, you know, traveling through the Silk Road, there are these great cities that you get to drive through and, and like Bukhara in Uzbekistan is a beautiful, there are buildings, I think back to the eighth century. You're staying in, in little pensions and hotels, just like you would backpacking about anywhere else and experiencing their, like going to a restaurant in Uzbekistan is not like anywhere else, you know, getting that cultural experience in a way that isn't geared towards tourists. It feels authentic. I, you know, maybe that sounds pretentious, but it just, it just really feels real. It feels like you are actually indiana jones <laughs> it's interesting it's a theme in this uh podcast i've talked to a few people where there's always a moment when either i say or, or somebody says it's a it's authenticity and there's almost an in the anxiety of authenticity everybody's self-conscious sure. about you know finding the authentic it's but you know in some way or another what we're trying to do is you know remove layers of artifice layers of capitalist industrialist mm-hmm modifications and filtering of experience and I, I think it's related to some of the political stuff that hopefully we'll we'll touch on in a second so i'm going to shift gears so to speak uh, a little bit on you in my experiences chatting with you mm -hmm. outside this podcast and reading some of your posts you seem to have a really sharp and distinctive political point of view for instance on your twitter profile you describe yourself as and let me get this quote adventure traveler photographer tattooed tech and music nerd and finally, Descent Farmer. <laughs> and your Twitter handle is, I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, Autarken, which mm -hmm. I looked up. And I believe it's a German word that translates roughly to self-sufficient, independent, and autonomous, something mm -hmm. like that. So I'd like to explore how travel is, to paraphrase Rick Steves, a political act. Do you think travel is a political act? And if so, in what ways is it political? Mm. I think the way that I approach it is political. I, I'm, I'm not looking to like go to a museum necessarily. That was part of one of the things I learned about this problem with expectation on the trip too, was I would have a certain expectation about a certain place and get to it and it not be what I was looking forward to. And then being disappointed in myself for having the expectation in the first place and being like, wait, I, okay, you know, Tikal is great, I'm sure, but maybe I shouldn't be like, trying to meet some like goal that everybody else is trying to meet when you do a lot of research about a place you you're getting other people's opinions about it and building up in your head an image of it but the times that i've had the most rewarding travel experiences are when i'm really engaging with the culture and that's all almost always political for me people are always well they're always asking questions about what's going on in the united states politically and you know, we traveled a lot during the Bush years, so we would always have conversations with people about what's the agenda of the government versus the agenda of the average person or whatever my interpretation of what I think the average person is. One of the things that you find is people are the same everywhere. <laughs> the hospitality that you find in Siberia or that you find in South America, these people aren't really different than, than you or I. And I think a lot of times, uh, Americans especially, I feel, and it's just my opinion, they're afraid. They're afraid of the world. And they're afraid because they don't know. 
fear is born out of ignorance a lot of times. So just having a passport, it makes you one of a, a few Americans who even have that. And then to use it to travel internationally, not just to Canada or Mexico, which those are great destinations, um, but to, to leave the continent and go, go meet other people face-to-face, talk to them, try to communicate with them in their language, and then they try and communicate with you in yours, that fosters an understanding and a connection with people too. Creating these connections is, is political because you know, then they can't see Americans all with just the face of whoever the politician of the day is on the television. You know, they're going to remember you um, and your, how your perspective is different. And then likewise for me, you know, I don't look at places like the Middle East or Central Asia with a fear of what a Muslim is, you know, because I lived in those places traveling through them saying, Assalamu alaikum. That's just how you say hello. It's not a scary Mm -hmm. thing. And it, it, you know, it just means peace unto you. That's a, I'm not saying that I'm religious in in the way that they are, but we're just communicating as as people. When you look at a lot of political problems anywhere in the world, I think it's because of misunderstanding and fear and ignorance. And if we just took time to learn more about each other, then we would find more, more in common than we have different. And, you know, your discussion of authenticity in the earlier discussion we had about the, the anxiety of trying to find the, the authentic, now that you bring it up, it's, it's crafting these thoughts in, in my brain. When you travel, there are many modes of travel that you can interact. One in one side of the spectrum is the prepackaged tour mm-hmm. in which you are shuttled in different destinations and different places and views and have a controlled environment and interactions with people. Mm-hmm. And that's one way to travel. Then there's a a resistance to that where you're seeking the so-called authentic, where you try to break away from that prepackaged experience. Perhaps you look at a rough guide or perhaps you look at a book that's not so popular and you might say to yourself, okay, I'm breaking away from the prepackaged tour, but in a way you are experiencing an itinerary and a flow of experience that has been prioritized by a point of view. So what you're describing where it's about exploring coursing through these places, interacting with people, not necessarily doing check boxes of what you should see and, and mm-hmm. having expectations about where you should go in order to really understand the authenticity of a place. It really sometimes isn't about experiencing locales and the places you go, but rather having the openness to let the experience of the day-to-day life in those places flow through you and then react to it in a natural way. So I think that's political in the sense that it's resisting prepackaged presentations of a certain country. Sure. Uh, whether it's really artificially prepackaged, <laughs> such as, you know, shuttle people and bus tours, or alternative prepackaged in these so called rough guides and insiders guide to fill in the blank. So it's really interesting to think about an alternative version of travel which which really appeals to me and we've talked about in this podcast before, which is parachute yourself into a place without necessarily having an itinerary and just having the luxury to be. Of course, there's always a little guiltiness about that, about how can we do that given the lives we lead and the two mm-hmm. weeks vacation, but that's precisely part of the problem, and it's a political problem. We're cogs in a capitalist industrialist <laughs> society that says two weeks is plenty, Yeah. but that restricts your ability to interact with people from many different places. So authenticity is, here I go, interesting in the sense it doesn't have to be a place that is unique that nobody else goes to. It's just a allowing the environment to bathe you Mm -hmm. and to react to it organically. 
And that's one of the things that taking the amount of time that we've cultivated to be able to take these trips gives you the time to break away from the environment that you were in and but also to try and do it in the way more like the local would do. The United States is unique in the amount of leisure time it deprives people. <laughs> so to, to be able to go to Europe where five weeks of vacation is the norm, if you have five or six weeks to explore, you're going to be doing it at a pace and with pe- the people locally that they're used to. And then you get to, instead of trying to rush it all in, you get to experience it a little bit more like they would. And also, it's not just about not following a prepackaged notion of, of what somebody else thinks, but when you get on that sort of tourist trail, you know, you're also more likely to encounter the, pe- the people there whose job it is, is to market and sell to you these experiences. So it's hard to get off the off that trail. When you have more time and you, you get away from the local salesman, and you're just more likely to run into everyday people, you're not going to get a prepackaged pitch from them. They haven't had time to think of what, what that pitch might be. What if I run into American today, what am I going to try to you know, sell him on, on my country? You catch people unaware, and then your interaction with them is more organic. It's, and, and you're unaware, too. You're, you're in a foreign environment. You're just trying to react to things in real time. But so are they. It puts you on a more even playing ground with people. That increases the likelihood that you might have a a challenging conversation if you go on a prepackaged tour of a certain place. Questions about the nature of your country, the nature of its political system, its cultural foibles are rare to come up or they come up in a laughing matter. Mm -hmm. But if you're out there independent of that, it might be a challenge might occur. An interesting conversation might occur, a little Mm -hmm. uh, sly question about who you elected these past elections and what yeah. the hell are you thinking that yeah. might come up more more naturally <laughs> if you if you move out of the path now that you bring it up you mentioned how the amount of time that you guys had to pre-plan in order to do this you know years mm-hmm. and had to save just think about folks who want to take more than their traditional two weeks off the amount of effort it takes to be able to do that in, mm-hmm. in our u.s system you have to save. You have to figure out how much time can I get. Put it in the bank. Will I be okay if I ask for five weeks instead of mm-hmm. the maximum two weeks? Will I still have a job when I come back? Perhaps it's simplistic in my mind, but I think the the anxiety people feel around those questions is not an anxiety that is present in a lot of the other countries we've been talking about in mm-hmm. the world. I'm not going to say it's unique, but it's particularly perverse in this country. It's mm-hmm. uh, Part of uh, viewing people as efficient workers in a mm-hmm. system and the the cult of productivity and of GDP and efficiency well, um, overtakes it. And it's a method of control that is so complete that people put it on themselves. People are afraid to ask for the time off. Mm-hmm. They're afraid of what the response will be, so they never ask. And they don't find out what it really would the response would be. Now... That's not to say that this is easy, what we've done. Um, And I recognize the incredible privilege that we come from, my my wife and I both, to have the kind of jobs where we have been able to ask for that and be given it. That is definitely not something everybody has. And I I do recognize that. But it wasn't given to us. And it's not a mistake that, that any of this happened. We cultivated this lifestyle. We decided 
which priorities were important for us, um, how much money to spend on entertainment or consumer items, you know, things, stuff to have at home. You know, part of being able to do these trips was shedding a lot of things um, so that we could have a very, the smallest possible storage unit and, you know, leave and be able to come back and have a, a small apartment instead of a house that requires a lot of maintenance. And it started when, when we took that European backpacking trip. We were fresh out of school. I was working as a test engineer at a dot-com down in Pioneer Square. And I asked him, I said, I want to take 90 days, go on this backpacking trip. And I understand if there's not a job for me when I get back, I'm, I'm willing to take that risk. But if there is, I'd love to come back. And they said, we'll give you an unpaid leave of absence. You know, is is because I was willing to risk asking that they said, you know, they thought about what my value was and they said, yes. Now, like I said, not everybody is in that kind of a position, but because I did that, I got spoiled and, and used to the idea of that. And so I have sought out job opportunities where that was going to be an option. And I made that a priority for myself. And I worked hard too, to make sure that I was valuable enough to be worth keeping around. Mm -hmm. So I think that uh, for sure, it's something that as Americans, we all need to think about why we would want to cultivate something more like a European sensibility where we say that everybody really deserves this. That's just something that most people don't have the opportunity for here. But part of doing that is cultivating that expectation by the people who are fortunate enough to make it happen mm-hmm. and, and give other people the idea that this can be normal for somebody. Yeah, it's, it's analogous, at least in my mind, to the whole conversation around universal health care. I mean, we're human beings, we're squishy biological entities mm-hmm. uh, living in a sharp physical universe. We will get nicks and bruises. We will get damaged. To not think about providing care as a fundamental benefit to mm-hmm. these squishy organisms. I, I view it analogously to providing the idle time to just be and reflect and unwind and think about your place in the world. I, I think they're analogous now. Yeah. Perhaps it's, again, yeah, coming from a privileged perspective, you know, and maybe many tech hubs. There is that possibility, whereas maybe in middle America where everything's a little more industrialized or, or you know, relying on fast food chains, et cetera, that, that is a very difficult to envision mm-hmm. that that conversation can even happen. But people need to have those conversations more and more so that we can change the culture. Well, and part of the reason that that is such a privileged perspective in the United States is because of the disparity in wealth and income and the situations that people are in that does not seem like a privileged perspective in Germany Mm -hmm. or Denmark or Norway. Some of these ideas that we should challenge uh, too about entrepreneurialism and efficiency and Protestant ethic ideas about working hard and pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and accomplishing everything on your own steam. But, you know, in Norway, the idea that you have healthcare allows people to take risk and go be entrepreneurial mm-hmm. without the dependence on having a job to give you your health care. And I think you see this in a lot of your, you know, Europe is not some communist dark place where people are working collectively, you know, all these, all these uh, stereotypical images that we have. It's a very modern Western capitalist 
society, but they have harnessed the productivity of capitalism to ensure that everybody has the opportunity that is generated by that productivity. Mm-hmm. In the United States, we have said that productivity is going to be split up so that the benefits of it go to a very small group of people. Mm-hmm. And the opportunities that those people have are viewed as privileged perspectives, as in Europe, they're not so privileged. Everybody is able to share in, and that's, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that no, there are no homeless people in Europe and people don't, but it's, those problems are, are shared the burden of them more equally. Mm-hmm. There's a certain natural acceptance of redistribution as a, a good thing, or even good is too strong a word as something that is the thing to do that is just par for the course of what it means to live. Whereas here, redistribution is a dirty word, mm-hmm. right? It's productivity and efficiency for the sake of shareholders. And the more productivity and efficiency we have, the more competitive we are, the more innovation we have in our society will move forward. But of course, now we see that, what is it, eight people have 40% of the wealth in the United States. Mm-hmm. So all this productivity and efficiency is not really being redistributed in, mm-hmm. in an interesting way, if at all. And America is not the only place where innovation happens. You know, Sweden has a lot of software companies doing innovative things. And, you know, Berlin has a thriving startup uh, software culture. Estonia, you see interesting things happening all over the place. And like I said, I think these people are enabled by a common social sharing of the risk of healthcare. They're able to take on these risks and try something new. Whereas in the US, people are just, they're afraid. They're afraid yeah. to ask for time off. They're afraid to start up their own business because what if it fails and now mm-hmm. I can't pay my rent and I have no healthcare? Those risks are less scary in mm-hmm. other places in the world. But let's change geography. I'm going to flip the globe a bit and talk about, I think it was a couple years ago, you recently took a trip where you packed up a car in Seattle, drove to South America. Uh, can you give me a description of, of what you guys did and where you went and what was the motivation behind that trip? You basically created your own personal yeah, rally in a way exactly. from Seattle down yeah. to South America. This, another aspect of this was complete freedom. It really, I mean, that first day that we left, there was a, a really exhilarating feeling of we did it like we quit our jobs two weeks ago and here now we're on the road and no we don't have to be anywhere like we can go wherever we want uh so we took we you know we really took our time getting getting down the west coast we have friends and family that we stopped and visited along the way we did wine tasting bourgeois sort of enjoying (laughs) enjoying ourselves but we also part of that those three weeks too was we were really realizing how expensive the united states was and so keeping an eye on our budget we said, okay, let's get into Mexico. Let's start this. Um, we spent about six weeks in Mexico. I think we spent about a month in Guatemala. We made a kind of a quick beeline through the rest of Central America. One of the key obstacles on this trip is getting around what's called the Darien Gap. So between Panama and Colombia, there is no road that you can drive. There's miles and miles of jungle there are rumors of narco traffickers there and uh, just, you know, indigenous people that are not friendly. There there are stories of people in off-road vehicles going through there with machetes and, you know, slashing their way through the jungle. But our car was clearly not up to any of that task and besides all of the other dangers. So we had met some other travelers who were going around the gap via container ship for the cars and then we all flew. And when we got to Colombia... It was, it, it instantly felt, well, very different, you know, again, uh, 
which is this newness that I'm looking for that stimulation, but it also felt very European to me. And so Cartagena is a, is a great modern city, but not in a over commercialized way that Panama had felt like we were able to sort of get that stimulation that we were looking for, but, um, not in a, not, you know, we weren't out in the sticks. It was, you know, we still had some, some comfort and then just driving through Colombia. What a fantastic country. The people were hospitable almost, you know, to a fault everywhere we went. The geography of the country is so diverse, you know, Cartagena, you're down at sea level, but a few days drive uh, up into the Andes and it's now you're at 10,000, 12,000 feet. We went up to El Cucuy and it feels like we're in Tibet. The landscape is drastically different. You're at elevation. It's it's just beautiful. It's like being in Tibet and also hints of like Swiss Alps and um, just being able to hike and being remote and all that. And, and then, you know, traveling down into Medellin and getting this like fantastic European feeling cosmopolitan culture, very, very Latin, Latin American, you know, like just felt, felt like more like Mexico almost. And, you know, I often mention that about some places I visit or even some cities in the United States, that Europeanized feeling, but mm-hmm. It's interesting to ask people to unpack what does that mean when when you say something is European yeah. and it's not in Europe. What do you think that that those qualities are that you're describing? I think it has to partially to do with a sort of a sociality, a feeling of comfortableness with strangers on the street. It has to do with sort of the way that transportation works not being so car focused. I mean, like Medellin is an enormous city, but we were never stuck in traffic. Um, they had a lot more buses there. Also, you know, the way the architecture is less houses, more apartments, mm-hmm. um, people living closer together, people living closer to their market where they get their food and a lot more walking to do things, a lot more parks in the environment of the city. It, and it just feels like people are out, living their lives together in the city more. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the United States, I feel like we have our houses, we have our cars, we're living our individual lives. Uh, It's all about who I am in the world um, and not what Mm -hmm. my relationship is with the community around me. How can I build and fortify and improve the shell which Mm -hmm. I live in or transport myself to my other shell, which is my work? Yeah. (laughs) Back and forth. So let me shift a little bit in, in our tail end of our conversation. I mean, you've talked about the ability for you to, you know, save up, plan, get up and go for long periods of time. But at the same time, you have to come back, mm-hmm. right? And, uh, and join the workforce and, and join the daily nine to five or whatever it is. How do you handle those two <laughs> poles of your brain, the the knowing that you could at any time pick up and go and have the, that amount of time and exploration, but at the same time, you've got this other pull where you have to work nine to five, do the efficiency, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Have you achieved a balance or is the the move to travel and explore and have adventures always nagging and it's always, uh, you always feel a sense of despair if you are <laughs> in the nine to five world. What psychologically, what's your state in between these? Yeah, I more the latter. I'm, I don't think I'm necessarily at a 
healthy, satisfied place with that tension. You know, before this last trip where we said we were going to leave for a year and, and have ultimate freedom, and I was very anxious. I was very upset just, you know, going to work every day. And even, you know, work was, I was in a, a not a bad place, but I would focus on the negative aspects of it instead of the positive aspects. And maybe that's just my personality, but um, it was very hard for me to find the the good things about being in the system. So yeah, I was always itching for, the, like I said, the new, the new stimulation. Now this trip, having been nine months, it, we, we ended up coming back a little early. The car broke down in Peru and the dogs started to be get very anxious and that when the roads were really rough. And so we, we turned it, turned it in, we turned around early. We didn't make it to Patagonia. We decided not to relocate to Europe and to come back to Seattle. Uh, it was, it was a comfortable thing for us to do. And fortunately, because we had planned to have our, our buffer uh, in our budget to, to relocate to Europe, we had the money to also come back here. Um, I, at that time, I, I thought, man, maybe I'm not, maybe I won't have the itch to travel <laughs> so, so quickly. Um, this, this trip was more challenging in a lot of ways. Uh, not, not physically so much, uh, but emotionally. And, uh, when we returned to Seattle, I was like, I, maybe I'll, I'll be settled for a little while. And we'd been back for about six months. And, uh, in that time I, I did do a little, a little bit of work, but uh, just contract work, and I haven't been working. And uh, I've been I'm what we call the house spouse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We're, again, very fortunate. You know, my wife had a great job. She was able to go back to her job. She actually got a promotion. Uh, so for anybody out there thinking about traveling for a long time, I say quit your job. You'll definitely get a promotion when you come back. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, because we were able to pay off our debts and because we have a we we designed our lifestyle to be a low cost lifestyle so that we can save for travel. Uh, right now, our expenses are low enough that my wife's income is enough for us to to live. And uh, so I've been taking that time to think about uh, what what can I do to be more creative, um, working on music again, and um, tr- working on the photography from the trip to try and finish telling that story. Um, you know, about on the blog, like, uh, you know, I want to communicate what this adventure was like for us. Um, and trying to let those creative outlets soothe my desire for something new. Um, I, to be totally honest, uh, not working is a, is a good, (laughs) good for my, um, emotional state. Um, that probably won't last forever. I'll probably go back to work at some time. I mean, I also do have that itch to do more. I mean, you know, like get up and go do something. Um, so there's, there is that, but, um, being a little bit more centered and calm, you know, to be able to go walk the dog every day and not have such a, a rushed lifestyle. That is really great. Um, but I do, I am already having the itch, you know, to, to go somewhere else that I think is just always going to be there as much as I would, tell myself at the end of the, the last trip, like, Oh, maybe I'm okay for a little while. It doesn't take very long for the anxiety of, of whatever event had just happened to wear away. 
you look back on on those experiences, you you see through the rose colored glasses the the good parts, and you, you don't experience the bad parts, and that that it generates more of the itch. Like I want some of that. I want to go back and see that more of that. So I think I will always want uh, for more. Yeah. Thank you so much. I mean, something that I didn't expect during this conversation. I knew we were going to cover your travels, your adventures with the rally, adventures from Seattle down to. To South America and talk about unique experiences and particularities. But what what really struck me during our conversation was the your honesty and openness about there's a certain romanticism associated with independent travel, but there's also a flip side, which is the the irritations, the pragmatic facts of the matter that you rarely hear <laughs> in the you know happy narratives of people taking independent travel and i think it's important for folks to understand both sides of that coin as well as the the deeply political and cultural values associated with this before we end could you let people know where they could go online in order to get a sense of where you have been and your thoughts along the way where should they go online in order to to find out more about you and your travels sure. uh so my blog is at nomadistan.com you go there today it might still be a little out of date i'm I'm working on on getting everything up to date also at instagram at nomadistan those would be the best places to to see about the travels and you know my wife and i have been writing about our travels since that european backpacking trip so most of that is documented there that would be the best place yeah thank you brian this was this was a great conversation thank you for being here thank you for having me Thank you for listening. Don't forget to share, like, or leave a review about this podcast since all this activity helps us get noticed and grow. I would also love it if you visited thismustbetheplace.io where our podcast, videos, and written content all live. On that site, you will find a companion article where you can find more information about Brian's travels and a bunch of relevant links. And of course, you can always subscribe and receive the latest, greatest episode on your favorite app and device. We are now on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn. Take your pick. Until the next time, this must be the place. Mm-hmm.